be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the third of three original series Twin Peaks books, Welcome to Twin Peaks, Access Guide to the Town, a collaboration between Lynch Frost Productions and Access Press. I'm your host, John. In Welcome to Twin Peaks, Access Guide to the Town, you'll find a fully tongue-in-cheek but made-with-love travel guide that is meant to give you a deeper understanding of the town you may decide to travel to, an excellent and common resource in the pre-internet world so you can get the most out of your experience while you're visiting it. And because this town is Twin Peaks, all of its sides are displayed throughout, from slapstick goofy to darker elements from the woods. The book begins with a town map, a letter from the mayor, some town statistics, and a note from the book's benefactor, Andrew Packard. After that, the table of contents shows us the sections the remainder of the book is divided into. History, the Packard Sawmill, Flora and Fauna, Geology and weather, points of interest, events, dining, lodging, sports, fashion, religious worship, transportation, town life, and government. In these sections, you'll experience every aspect of the town from local plant life to its founders to local legends to annual festivals, all covered in joke on top of joke, some more effective than others, with plenty of ephemera and local store ads loaded into the margins proving for an immersive experience that contains plot and lore details that can send fans dreaming of what could have been. Now, while this book doesn't exactly have a narrative structure like most of the other books, it still leaves us with a ton of things that we can learn about Twin Peaks. And what questions are we left with? What can we learn about Twin Peaks from its map? What can we learn from the history of the region? What can we learn from Twin Peaks circa 1989 when this book was made? How does Twin Peaks interact with the senses? What can we learn about Twin Peaks lore and the season three that could have been on ABC in the 1991-92 TV season? And what brings new light to the mythology when compared with future pieces of Twin Peaks media? But before we get into those questions, we're going to look into how this book was made. 
So the book may be long out of print, and Richard Saul Werman, the owner of its publisher, may not be interested in ever reprinting it, but I'm here to help you by giving this book my characteristic deep dive treatment. So comparing it to the other books, you know, the precedents set in the diary continue. It can be found in-universe, and um, I will say, as an in-universe object that can be found, it's a little tighter than the Cooper book and the cards, for sure. You know, we've got Andrew Packard, character in the show, wanting to create some uh, civic pride. You know, that, that seems believable to me. It's a good premise for starting this. And honestly, it's the most believable item after the diary. You know, in, including James aside, no other kids are actually mentioned in this book. So only, only their parents who are you know, in positions of note within the town. You know, for tourism purposes, it makes sense to note who they note for the most part. And unlike the trading cards, uh, which is kind of paired up with them as far as a lot of the information on the... um, on the character bios, this book does things like, you know, not mention One-Eyed Jacks and shady folks like Jean Reno. Um, you know, they, they mention the places like the train graveyard, but, you know, there's um, zero mention of the too recent Laura Palmer murder, and they only mention her once as far as, like, just being newly buried in Black Lake Cemetery. You know, it's, um, they, they, don't, um, they don't glorify the fact that this town has a bunch of crime in it. You know, it's a proper thing to sidestep when you're marketing your town for tourism. Though I will say the inconsistencies are still pretty much there, just like any other Twin Peaks book. You know, the, the fact that when they have Andrew's page, Um, It gives his range of life from 1926 to 1987, but then they put a a semicolon and say, and 1926- as if, you know, like he's still alive. You know, even though, according to the town, he hadn't been revealed to be alive, even even from episode 29 on. Uh, so, you know, it's complicated. There's continu- you know, there's continuity issues like this where the viewers would know things, but not the characters in the show. Though, um, though in this book, there's fewer of those than you'd think. And technically, as far as continuity issues go, you know, any, um, any further inconsistencies with the plot, you know, can basically come down to what Mark Givens of Deer Meadow Radio pointed out, that um, Andrew Packard's money paid for this book. So Andrew Packard and his family's POV must be appeased for the whole process. You know, follow the money, as Mark said. So, you know, I mean, technically you could do that for a lot of these uh, quote unquote truths in this book because, you know, history is written by the people paying. And per every other um, Twin Peaks book, you know, aside from maybe the Cooper autobiography, um, you know, the dates are basically what they are. There's a section on the passion play, which I will go into heavy. That's basically, you know, something that could set up an end game in the woods in the possible season three on ABC, it's um, it's basically in this book said to take place in April of 1992, which is when viewers like us who would be reading it at the time would be watching that plot line play out on ABC as, you know, our version of season three would be wrapping up. So, you know, the way that it was written in this book notes, you know, for us to kind of keep an eye on. But, you know, if you're looking 
internally at the show's 1989, if if you stick to the day an episode kind of formula, that's um, over three years later than the date in 1989. So um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really match up with its own internal dates. It's more for matching up with the viewers at the time of this book's publication. Mostly, the rest of the inconsistencies in this book are all internal continuity issues, like with, you know, the Cooper autobiography and, um, you know, things that will be, um, you know, considered wrong or completely reversed once Mark Frost writes Secret History of Twin Peaks and Final Dossier. And, you know, I'll be discussing that later because I think there's a purposefulness to that. But, um, you know, for the most part, I'm not, like, huge on the continuity because I don't think any of the writers... Uh, of this book were like completely married to the continuity just like ever but you know again it's it's um it's all consistent you know the inconsistencies are consistent within twin peaks as a whole even at this point so you know nothing to complain about there really uh so we can move on to how this book was made um so yeah this was part of the pocketbooks deal somehow um there's, I mean, there's definitely a Pocketbooks logo on the bottom left of the front cover. So I'm, I'm assuming that Access Press was also published through Pocketbooks. Richard Saul Werman, who is the creator of TED Talks, etc., he, um, he's also the publisher of Access Press, um, which you know they they did real town guides, um, and his his group was approached to do this by Lynch Frost Productions and per his interview in Twin Peaks Unwrapped um he thought it would be a fun idea to do a takeoff on his own books and Twin Peaks you know the arrangement was probably forged in the summer of 1990 along with the pocketbooks deal as a whole and um you know maybe bank shot from an idea that Mark Frost was unable to actually devote time to uh because he was initially um, approached to write a novel of his own. And while no one has said it exactly, I think the access guide came from that idea of the book that might have been, you know, had only there been more time. And uh, Ken Shearer, the COO of Lynch Frost Productions, he says this book would have been Mark's passion in a different place and time when he was speaking to Mark Givens on um, Dear Meadow Radio. And as far as where I'm getting that from, Mark Frost, while being interviewed by John Thorne for Wrapped in Plastic Number 9, which was only a few years um, after this, um, Frost had this to say, I was originally approached with doing a novel. My idea was to do a Twin Peaks book a la James Michener, go back to the start with the geological formations of the peaks and the strange electromagnetic force that grew up between the mountains and how it oddly affected all the people in the area. But I just got too busy and never got to it. So why didn't he have time to do it? Well, I mean, obviously he was busy with running Twin Peaks, um, but he was also uh, basically producing and directing Storyville, which was the movie that was already uh, beginning to be in motion before Twin Peaks was even renewed for season two. But you can tell that these ideas had somewhat folded into this book instead, because on page 54 of the Access Guide, we get a short explanation of the creation of those mountains 100 million years ago. And uh, on page 55 is the post-Ice Age creation of the waterfall, the source of the electromagnetic uh, the electromagnetic force between them. So between Frost's repurposed ideas, 
And the fact that Frost at the time was also fascinated by Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that pretty much explains the tone of this book. Now, we've got a lot of authors on this book. I mean, it basically says Richard Saulwerman, Mark Frost, and David Lynch up at the very top, like they were the main writers. But um, Werman basically told uh, the twi- you know, Twin Peaks Unwrapped in his interview with them that he worked with his Access Press team to do the art, the layout, the final wording in his offices. And um, he, d- he did verify that Mark Frost and David Lynch were both involved. And he also said the Twin Peaks writers were assigned topics to write about for use in this book, as were some Access Press writers. And on page 111, th- where the credits are, um, is the list of the people who did work on the Access Guide. We've got, we've got Lynch, Frost, and Werman, like I said. And then uh, we also have uh, Ken Shearer listed as the COO of Lynch Frost Productions. And we get the list of writers, Greg Almquist and Lise Friedman, who appear to work for the Access Press side because uh, I have no other record for them. And, um, and then we have Twin Peaks writers, Trisha Brock, Harley Payton, and Robert Engels. So yeah, this was definitely a group effort between two companies. Now, as far as when this was written, from the interviews that I've heard from Mormon and Shearer and Peyton, contributions to this book happened alongside the writing and producing of season two. You know, it, it seems like it was a uh, sporadic and also constant in between other moments. The writing likely began around the same time as the trading cards and the Cooper autobiography. And if it did take place around the Cooper autobiography time, you know, that, that first month, um, that would account for why Scott Frost is not a noted author in this book's credit. But Trisha Brock, whose first episode episode, was episode 17, was included. So yeah, it points to early October being when this book was begun in earnest. And um, that also leaves room at the front for uh, Lynch to make his contributions, because... um, you know, there's that middle part where he was um, he was preparing for and doing that art show in Japan in the early part of 1991 when this book appears to be completed. And, you know, also why he didn't contribute too much. Now, as far as the state of um, Lynch and Frost relationship at this point, um, we, we get a little bit of a peek behind the scenes when Ken Shearer told Dear Meadow Radio, by the time we got to producing it, the steam had really gone out of the relationship with Mark and David and with the show. And so I think the decision was made to have a little fun, try to be as respectful to, of, of the fan base as we could be, but ultimately have a little fun with it and do the best we could. So that says to me also that this was in the aftermath of being forced to reveal the killer, which also, you know, October seems to be about that time. And, um, you know, we have Lynch lending his voice as late as episode 18, where, you know, know, don't let him rattle you, Coop. But, you know, Lynch was there in the offices at the time, even though he was kind of sidelined. So a project like this kind of makes sense that, like, maybe he would take a picture of the cover around that. Though, you know, who knows? This could also be after Lynch got back in February when, um, you know, Gordon was being flabbergasted by Shelley Johnson. You know, this could be when he did his other portion. And, you know, I mean, that would have been back in February when that stuff was happening. But, you know, this book also does seem to be completed after the others. Its publication date was a month after the Cooper book and cards, um, you know, in, in June of um, 1991. So, um, 
It also includes a picture of Dan O'Hurley as Andrew Packard, while the cards didn't even have a picture of Kenneth Welch. So, yeah, this this does have production details um, from a later point in time than the others. And also, Ken Shearer says, We kind of knew this was the end. And so, in some ways, we wanted to try to personalize it for ourselves, that we that we were here, which also places it kind of as late as February of 1991, when the show was actually being put on hiatus. Another detail where that could have been oh, when Lynch uh, made part of his contributions is because Tim and Tom's taxidermy, the ad that he puts in this book, um, that was going to be used in episode 27 when John Justice Wheeler needed to get to the airport. And Twin Peaks does not do long planning, so <laughs> it, it would make sense that right around then would have been when um, when Lynch made that. And another sign that points to parts of this book being still created in February, well, there's a there's a little sign detail in the margins um, where um, where it says "This way" and an arrow to stop Ghostwood Fashion Show. And, you know, that was an element that occurred in episode 24, which was alongside the pine weasel attack. And, you know, the pine weasel is also nicely included in this area's fauna section. So, yeah, this book began probably October of 1990 and was finished somewhere, you know, around February of 1991. And it was probably a nice way for the, the staff to kind of blow off steam in between episodes or in between parts of episodes, especially while, you know, all the pressure from ABC was coming in where, like, it seems like the show wouldn't make it beyond this year. And, yeah, that leads into the goals of this book and, you know, what Ken Shearer said about basically a way for the creative staff to timestamp their presence. You know, Shearer says... It was a fun way to kind of say goodbye to not only our jobs, it was also a way to memorialize some of the things that meant so much to us in the two-year journey that we were there. Yeah, we get things like maps. The inside front cover contains a simple map of the town, and uh, Worman says that the maps are prominent in this book because he loves maps. Uh, the street names, aside from Lynch Road and Frost Avenue, of course, are named after Worman's kids and friends. Uh, Ken Shearer had lost his father during the book's production, so that explains the in memory of Herbert F. Shearer Sr. Between you know the that we see between the mayor's note and the book's indicia, page ninety and ninety-one, they present a picture spread across the middle of both pages, uh, commemorating the Twin Peaks football team with a perfect season. And this photo is actually a genuine yearbook photo of Ken Shearer's brother's high school football team. And I personally love the use of the promo shots by Paula Shimatsuyu being credited as locals. You know, we've got Lynch and Frost outside of the sheriff's station conversing while working on the pilot. And then we get um, Dana Ashbrook, you know, arms crossed and head held pompously high. And James Marshall, you know, his, his hands are tucked in a leather jacket and his cheeks are sucked in Zoolander style, uh, flanking a totem pole looking serious. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's fun to, to even use the promo work uh, for it. But, um, yeah, we also get those kind of shots used with, with the margin bios that we'll see for a bunch of our characters. And among these 
characters that are really prominent in the show, like Cooper and, you know, Doc Hayward and all those kind of characters that we see a lot, they all line one margin, save one for Trudy Chelgren, the uh, the great northern waitress uh, who we see a couple of times and who happens to be Bob Engel's wife, Jill. And um, he always makes sure to include her in all the things that he personally has worked on. And um, Bob Engels made sure that she got two margins for her bio. Yeah, that's a nice flex, dude. But um, probably my favorite flex in the book is on the silly did you know page that's early on in the book. And um, there's this big screw you to ABC right in there. Uh, yeah, so Twin Peaks original network never liked the small town population number for the show that was intended because they thought viewers would never relate to a show about a small town. They made sure that Lynch and Frost added a decimal point to the population. So now Lynch Frost productions moved it back by saying the 1990 census revealed our present population is 5,120.1, not 51,201. So not only do they have a chance to say that, you know, this really is a small town, folks, it also creates a weird joke about there being a possibility of a point one of a person. Yeah, so who knows? Maybe it's a political statement about how to credit fetuses as life before they're able to be given a social security number. But, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, they weren't they were political, but not that political. But, you know, the way that I've been thinking about it over the years is maybe it's the arm. Yeah, but whatever. That's, you know, future fire walk with me joke right there and that wouldn't have been made at the time so yeah i think the point one was just there to be you know goofy and absurd but yeah so there's a lot of time stampy kind of things like that but um another goal of this book is basically to be as creative as humanly possible and throw in as many of those ideas as they could so um, Werman said that he and his team assembled all the items from the twin Peaks side as well as adding their own touches in his words, trying to mirror the show and take it to an otter place. And he talks about how the, uh, the Reykjavik phone book is arranged alphabetically by first name. And, you know, he thought that would be a quirky enough, you know, quirky enough detail to use in Twin Peaks, too. And, you know, of course, Twin Peaks uh, puts a spin on it by focusing on the Roberts, where all the Bobs could possibly be. And there's a lot of Roberts in town. But yeah, Werman and his team cannibalized anything that they could and made this delightful book of marginalia and footnotes. And, you know, sure, that includes all those Frost details that I mentioned about the Michener style book. But it also shows up in other ways, such as, you know, the short stories that take the shape of local legend that are almost like tone poems sometimes. And, you know, notes in the margins about, you know, religious movements or, you know, like possible cults like the circulars. Um, they show up here and there. And it's kind of hard to tell, you know, who came up with what idea, like the Twin Peaks side or the Access Press side. But to best show the two teams' collaborations on the material, we have pages 26 and 27, which is The Joys of Whittling. It's a two-page section 
that's basically a goofy how-to list of how to best enjoy the fad of whittling, along with illustrations of things like, you know, two hands, you know, missing a total of three fingers. You know, there, there's a statue of a bear that they title Big Ugly Wood Bear Carving. <laughs> and, uh, you know, then we have Cooper's Whistle as a prop, um, the one that he whittles. And um, an illustration of a knife, and we get Dale Cooper's bio there. But, you know, it's not just, um, you know, and, and, um, and Worman points this page out in particular that he really enjoyed putting together the whittling page. But also, in um, Harley Payton's interview with Deer Meadow Radio, he declared that he wrote the whittling section, and he thought it was so nice. Uh, I mean, he, he enjoyed that one, I mean. So, yeah, Harley Payton probably did the writing. Richard Saul Werman and his team uh, probably did the visual jokes. And honestly, the whittling page is often one of the first things that I remember about the book, too. So it's a fun page for sure. And uh, it's uh, it's a pretty memorable time for readers and writers alike. So, yeah, besides just um, just being as creative as possible, all these details are supposed to make the town feel lived in. And, you know, we get to the advantages of the town guide format itself. You know, this would be the place to highlight all the pieces of a show Bible that wouldn't have been able to make it into the show thus far and make it out into, you know, our world that we would be able to see. And, um, you know, sure, there's no actual Twin Peaks show Bible, but the effect ends up being the same. And honestly, some of the things that are included here, like Tim and Tom's taxidermy, was supposed to make it out of this book into the show. So, I mean, it's sort of like reverse engineering a show bible sort of and we end up getting to see more corners of this town than we would have you know more characters in the town more buildings that don't have to be narrative dependent uh, to the plot in of the moment of the shows you know it's a, it's a way to see things that wouldn't otherwise be noticed and you know i mean, for a pre-internet world it's kind of adjacent to doing a google search on the town and seeing what comes up and um, getting to go down all these different rabbit holes well I mean, town guides were kind of that. It really does make the place feel incredibly lived in, and it gives a good it gives good access to people who are really interested in world building and you know creative projects like that. You know, there's a lot of things to actually think about in here, even though this book is mostly played for jokes. You know, there, there's still plenty of meat in this book to say the mission accomplished. Now, as far as this book's end result, it was published in June 1st of 1991, and it's tough to know how well this thing sold. I know for sure that it was out in the wild uh, because my blood ran cold when I locked eyes with one uh, when I saw it being sold in a souvenir shop in Wisconsin that summer. I, I didn't get it then because, you know, I was on vacation with my parents and I was still very freaked out by the Twin Peaks finale. But um, it, it was it was actually something that I noticed, unlike the Cooper autobiography, which I didn't know was published at the time. So, you know, who knows? Maybe this thing sold uh, better than the Cooper book even. But, um, you know, regardless, you can't you can't buy a new one because uh, Werman stopped, you know, like once he sells out, he sells out and he never reprints. That's just his policy on things. But you you can still find used copies of this fairly easily on eBay or like I did in uh, 2011 on Amazon. And, you know, it's it's around $30 or so, which isn't too bad. Now, I, I haven't heard too many people actually talk about having, you know, honestly read this book. But, you know, most people who have read it seem to like it. You know, they'll, they'll brush it off as fun, but not exactly essential. 
But, you know, like I said, it's an excellent example of world building and exactly the kind of format that I would use uh, to to make a story Bible whenever I finally sit down and do something like that. And um, there are a few folks like me that absolutely love this book. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like it, it might be uh, a little unwarranted how much I love this book. But, you know, it's like I I've got myself back in 2016 i made an entire podcast worth of book review so that em and steve at sparkwood and 21 uh podcast you know they they were able to make a whole episode around it so uh and you know later on i made the episode i mean i made the article for 25yl called the only twin peaks access guide resource that you'll ever need uh which i you know i i use heavily here and i i don't use all of it um it's not just me reading the article but um yeah i i just love this book and then we've got people like mark givens um, of Dear Meta Radio, who devoted a number of his podcast episode on the subject before uh, season three ever aired. So, you know, this, this book's known readership might be small, but we go to bat for this book. And, um, and I, I sort of mentioned it earlier that, you know, Mark Frost went back to this book noticeably um, when, when he was writing Secret History of Twin Peaks and the 2017 episodes that aired on Showtime, and even for Final Dossier a little bit. Um, so, you know, Mark Frost gives this book a little bit of respect, too. Yeah, I, I encourage you, um, if you think it's a little bit of a fluff piece, um, you know, just stick around through this episode. There's still plenty of good stuff in it. All right, so at this point, we would be looking into a Log Lady introduction if this were an episode, but of course, we don't have one. And, um, you know, this is a book, so Lynch probably hasn't read this book because he just doesn't do that, even if he participates in it. But he has worked on this book. So let me break down what he did in this book for sure. First of all, he shot the front cover. So it's this flat green background. There's a white kind of a ribbony text box thing where Welcome To weaves through giant red letters of Twin Peaks. And on the middle and bottom two-thirds, there's this big white plate that takes up most of it. And on this white plate in the center is a slice of cherry pie. And um, reading from my 25YL article about the access guide, I say, when asked about the cover... Shearer laughed and said there were a large number of comments and notes on this. You'd think maybe it would look more together if Lynch was that focused on it, right? Not this time. And what Werman says about this is um, David Lynch wanted the art in the Access Guide to be fuzzy, out of focus, and unprofessional. So, you know, mission accomplished. You know, from first glance, Lynch gave us a product that looks like it literally came from the earnest resonance of Twin Peaks. And you know that they tried really hard. Besides that cover, his only other known contribution was the giant multi-page ad for Tim and Tom's taxidermy on pages 58 to 61, squarely in the middle of the book. So the ad's star, David Lander, who is uh, Twin Peaks' Mr. Pinkle, and Laverne and Shirley's Squiggy, among other things, as Tim, you know, Tim Pinkle, the guy that we see with the uh, with the Pine Weasel and Dick Tremaine and all that, and um, running Miss Twin Peaks, and um, the 
other guy in there is um, the secret weapon of Scott Ryan's Fire Walk With Me, Your Laura Disappeared, and uh, future producer of Deadwood and True Blood, and at the time then producer of Twin Peaks, Greg Feinberg as Tom. And it's basically shots of them in a car dressed up really silly. I would have loved watching these guys running around for about an hour it probably took to stage this photo shoot. I imagine this ad was born when Lynch had a twinkle in his eye and Feinberg and Lander were the first people he came across on set and he said, fellas, meet me in the parking lot in 10 minutes before he raided the costume department or something. I mean, I can't prove it officially, but I think Lynch wrote all of the ad copy on this too. I mean, read it in a Lynch impression voice and its humor will make so much more sense than just reading it. So it begins with a two-page spread of the car in a profile, windows rolled down and both brothers leaning out in ridiculous outfits, presenting us with, you know, these thumbs up signs. And above the picture is the text, we'll drive anyone anywhere, uh, asterisk. We'll stuff anything, even a bear, double asterisk. And below the picture in smaller font is this text. Uh, w- this text. Um, the, the asterisk has in parentheses, within Twin Peaks city limits. And the other one about the bear, (laughs) uh, the double asterisk in parentheses says, has to be dead. And then there's a spread of four panels over the next two pages where, you know, there's a picture uh, of um, of the front wheel and fender in the first panel which comes with this caption. Through the magic of telepathy, blind Tom pictures vividly everything his brother says. Born in Twin Peaks, never having left for anything, the brothers are inseparable. The only time they're not working is when they're sleeping. And even then, they're sawing logs. So, um, yeah, the next panel after that has Tom looking out the car window in sunglasses with his winter hood pulled up along with this caption that says... Tom says, don't be nervous. Just close your eyes like me. Then we see a, a long-distance panel uh, shot of the of the original picture with this caption. Come ride and stuff with us. And um, lastly is a panel looking into the rear car window at Tim, who is sitting straight, looking forward, and wearing a mask over his eyes. The caption says, Tim says, Tom's blind. Come ride and back with me and I'll drive. I mean, it's it's a really goofy, goofy thing here. But, you know, against all odds, I really enjoy how thematically connect, you know, how thematically connected this um, this goofy ad really is. I mean, the telepathic connection between the brothers, even when they're, quote unquote, sawing logs. Yeah, I mean, it sure sounds familiar if you're willing to look at how Dale is connected to dreams. And um, it's all about letting go of fear, closing your eyes. And letting intuition take you where you want to go. And um, the driver is visualizing the words from his brother. So, you know, the ability to visualize your dreams into reality and making it work. So, you know, in Twin Peaks, Cooper worked best when he trusted the flow of things. But, I mean, it seems like a metaphor for how Lynch talks about meditation. So, a silly ad? Yes. A lot of Lynchian ideals? Also yes. Now, I'm also curious about a few other things that Lynch may or may not have included. And, you know, like there's no corroboration on this at all. I just think it really fits with his themes. Um, there's a there's a Chinook legend of an ancestress of the Frog Clan. 
Uh, it talks about a house in the middle of the lake where a woman sits, covered with flying frogs. And in the words of the article say, the flying frog has been seen as a special crest. And above that, there's an illustration which is a frog-shaped creature with wings. It looks like a sculpture of some kind. So I know the quinoa video story that um, Lynch included in at the uh, second disc of the Inland Empire video, but is this also a prototype for the Part 8 frog bug that um, Girl sees in the black and white segments of um, you know the Part 8? Or is this just more happy accident that Lynch doesn't even remember, and he would just smile about like, man, that's crazy. Yeah, you know, we're we're not going to know. So um less incidental than that and probably more accurately something Lynch would do. There's the bottom half of page 99, which is about an eccentric selection of local furniture that you can get from, you know, a local shop. And I'm really curious, there's a picture of two pieces of furniture and I'm curious if these two selections pictured were not some props that Lynch built himself cuz you know, I mean, he does that. Um you know, uh, Frank's crazy uh, monitor rising out of the desk, you know, <laughs> in in uh, in that episode of uh, season three. You know, like it Lynch Lynch's M.O. is to make furniture in, in interesting ways. And so at minimum, I think these two these two examples had to have caught his eye. But, you know, I think there's a really solid outside chance that he built that stuff. But, yeah, that's really as close as we can tie Lynch to this book. So at this point, we're going to take a break and listen to some words from our fellow podcasters at the Ruminations Radio Network. Hey, kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, so welcome back. We are about ready to go into my typical questions and break down this book for all the uh, all the non-Lynch-related material. And my first question to focus on is, what can we learn about Twin Peaks from its map? So the top third of the inside back cover is a map of highways. And, I mean, it's, it's more of a nationwide kind of map. And um, Twin Peaks is located just above and to the right of center, which is squarely between British Columbia, Washington, and Montana. So, you know, Missoula, home of Lynch, appears, as does Yakima, which is the hometown of Kyle McLaughlin. And below the map is a two-column chart of mileage from Twin Peaks to dot, dot, dot. And then there's a number of towns within Canada and the U.S. that are on the list, as well as Odd Duck Stockholm, Sweden. So is that a joke about Stockholm Syndrome? And um, Hong Kong, of course, is listed, which is relevantly listed because of Josie, I assume. Now, inside the book on the Did You Know page, we get details about Twin Peaks is equidistant between extremely cold Alaskan town Juneau and extremely warm Arizona town Cayente. And in between states are basically all the rage in Twin Peaks, and this is literally being equidistant between a really hot and a really cold town. So, you know, that's that's another way to, you know, roll with that theme. 
Now, as far as the local map goes, on the inside front cover is a local map with pins marking certain buildings like, you know, the hospital and the sheriff's station, as well as homes like the Haywards and Palmer's houses. Its layout is the same shape as the map that's on the chalkboard in the sheriff's station conference room during early to mid-season two episodes. And looking at the map, I notice a few things. Uh, the sheriff's station is on the north side of Upper Twin Park, while the gazebo is on the park's lower side, no more than probably two blocks away. So this tells me, and this I put in the Access Guide article, if a deputy on night duty looked out the window, he could have easily seen Maddie Ferguson dressed as Laura Palmer, as well as witness Dr. Jacoby being attacked by a man in a ski mask. And also, the gazebo is located in Upper Twin Park rather than Easter Park with the lake that James and Maddie have their goodbye scene and Annie and Cooper have their nature study on. So is it the same gazebo with a roving lake <laughs> or are there two gazebos? Yeah, whatever. I mean, it's just, um, yeah, they, they just weren't thinking that hard about it. Now, there is a Lynch Road, which runs north and south from Lowtown, a location of particularly harrowing drug deal gone wrong in the secret diary of Laura Palmer, up to a dead end at the railroad line. Its shape is not unlike an elongated question mark and it runs parallel to Highway 21, and both Horn's Department Store and Calhoun Memorial Hospital are located on it. Now, Frost Avenue runs east and west, from a dead end in the corner of the residential district up to where it comes to a T intersection at Highway 21. Sparkwood intersects Frost Avenue nearly in the middle of its length, and both the Sheriff's Station and the Palmer House are located on it. Uh, Frost Avenue and Lynch Road do not intersect, but they work well at keeping the aspects of the map tied together. And on the back cover, we get a wider view of this map, uh, including more to the north and south and east and west. And um, we can now see that Lynch Road goes straight on through Lowtown, labeled Lower Town here. And um, it dead ends at Ungwin's Field Observatory, which I will definitely be talking about later. Also, Glastonbury Grove and Owl Cave are near each other off of Blue Pine Mountain, which is a fair way away from the town proper, and the train graveyard is due south of them. And we also see that the Great Northern is south of Whitetail Mountains on this map, rather than in between the two mountains. So it doesn't match with modern continuity. But as Peaks moves from this side of the state to the other side in modern era material, I'll give this a pass. All right, so that's about all we can really, um, you know, thematically mine from just looking at maps. So we're on to our next question, which is, what can we learn from the history of the region? So I know I've started mentioning about the prehistory, but I'll elaborate a little bit more on it. On pages 54 and 55, we get the original idea that became the Access Guide. It is 100% Mark Frost's idea and uh, probably began with his words as well. I remind you now of his quote from Wrapped in Plastic Magazine number 9 with an interview that he did with John Thorne. 
Uh, he says, my idea was to go back to the start with the geological formation of the peaks and the strange electromagnetic force that grew up between the mountains and how it oddly affected all the people in the area. And so the, the text here elaborates that around 200 million years ago, the macrocontinent of Pangaea splits up and collides with the Pacific floor, which creates volcanic formations. Yeah, I mean, lava is basically a liquid fire. So, you know, fire is obviously a theme in Twin Peaks. And it's it's interesting that it kind of creates the actual floor that everything is on. A hundred million years ago, that's um, half the time between the, um, you know, Pangaea colliding with the Pacific floor and now, this is when the Olamagan subcontinent collides with the area, which in quotes from the book, likely elevates Blue Pine and Whitetail Mountains. So, you know, more fire causing the formation of the land and the mountains. And then about 20 million years ago, the Ice Age covers the land and eventually when it melts, creates, and, you know, I'm, I'm noting that the water here creates Pearl Lakes and Whitetail Falls. So fire and water and, you know, uh, this is the water, this is the well. Um, yeah, there, there's, um, there's ways to connect all this. So, you know, now I'm going to move ahead a little bit and get on to the first inhabitants. And um, the book, you know, the, the text in the book says, It is generally accepted that the first humans in the Northwest migrated from Asia during the final stages of the Quaternary Glacial Epoch when dropping sea levels allowed the cyber people to forage over a land bridge connecting the two continents. So the Ice Age brought people along with the water. You know, though there's a lot of acceptable in 1991 levels of casual racism for humor's sake revolving around Indians as savages, basically, um, you know, that hasn't aged too well. But there's also two and a half pages that begins kind of a running joke that the only people who stay in the area don't tire of thick, gloomy forests and the disturbing sound of owls. There's a lot of details in here, too too, of like general history that was probably from a project about Crazy Horse that Ken Shearer says he was working on with Mark Frost at the time. Uh, but we get through that and we find out that trading parties from Russia, America, and England are all there basically for beaver pelts. And yeah, I mean, there's a silly joke about, you know, split beaver style of pelts. Y even Lewis and Clark find their way through town, just like they'll do in Secret History of Twin Peaks. So, you know, silly jokes, Married with actual history elements. Um, that, that's kind of how this book rolls. Now, there's interesting date issues because in this book, in 1888, Thor's Trading Post is the only business in town, but that changes when James and Ungwin Packard arrive two years later in 1890, except that there's a blizzard that happens in 1889 that James Packard is said to be part of the town with, and the old opera house was built in 1882, which is supposed to be six years earlier than Thor's trading post. So, you know, either you could say that the Packards get here after the town's already established, but are rewritten as essentially town founders because Packard money made the book, or could this be simultaneously happening with later history because time loops are happening in real time, same as it ever was, or, <laughs> or the writers got their dates mixed up and forgot to make, you know, dates consistent within this work, you know, which is also something the Twin Peaks folks do all 
all the time. So, you know, that's the actual answer that, you know, the writers of this book just, you know, they are loose with trying to be consistent with that sort of thing. And, you know, whatever. I mean, that's that's the real answer. But, you know, there, there's fun ways where you can kind of uh, mix it around so that it still works with, like, mystical canon or, you know, any other kind of canon you want to make. You know, so I'm not going to get too hung up on the dates here. And um, I'm just going to kind of go with how um, the town founders show up first and then some of these other details show up, like, uh, you know, the opera house being built after they get here, that kind of thing. So we got on page six, it's devoted to the Packards arriving. You know, James Packard brings his name to town along with his wife, Ungwen, and his plans for the mill, which he just began building. And, um, you know, by just began building, that means that he doesn't really care who else already lives there. And, um, you know, he basically resolves any issues with the, I assume they already lived there, uh, Quakiotl Indians, and I apologize for pronunciation, I'm sorry, um, by giving the Native Americans cough drops for it. So, uh, but, um, you know, I mean, that's that's just the humor of the day coming through again. And uh, on page seven, right after the package get there, it lays out the misfortune of uh, Pete Martell's ancestors, Rudolph and Pixie, who arrive a year after the Packards to um, easily show Pete doesn't fall far from the tree. Um, you know, it talks about how their mule dies before they make it to San Francisco, where they were actually aiming for. So they settle in to Twin Peaks and um, end up starting a rival mill with castoffs that wouldn't make the cut at the Packard Mill. And um, a genuine rivalry actually ensues. Then we get word that um, the horns uh, arrive in town. And, you know, it contains three items of note there. Um, yeah, Orville and Brulitha Horn are here as well as the first Truman in town, Crosby Truman. Uh, he's a problem-solving inventor, um, you know, rather than always being a lawman, um, as reported in Secret History, you know, um, every every time, every, every male Truman happens to be a sheriff, all that. Yeah, so he's an inventor here, and he offers his services first to the Packards, who pass on it, and... Um, then he ends up uh, giving his services to the Packards, and he builds them the Blue Pine Lodge. So, uh, yeah, uh, Truman actually built the building that um, the Packards are in and that Josie lives in. So, uh, yeah, interesting connection. Not sure if it's supposed to mean anything or if that was just a cute way to include a Truman. But um, there's a theme of fire that shows up here. Like, not only does it make the mountains through lava, the horns also make their business uh, through probably setting fire to their competitors. So um, the, uh, Thor's trading post uh, mysteriously um, catches fire and burns down. And in, um, in the entry for the city's museum, there's a small margin note connecting the horns pictured totem pole you know that we see in the show to the pre-arson uh, pre Thor's trading post 
So um, that may as well be actual proof that a horn will always burn down the building of their staunchest business rival. But, you know, the book just drops it in like it's a punchline of a joke. Like, wink, wink, look at those uh, those wacky horns doing it again. Yeah, <laughs> But, um, you know, just don't forget that it's evidence of another repeating cycle that shows up in official Twin Peaks material that, you know, it, it just connects to Ben planning the Packard Mills arson in season one. But yeah, before we get there, the next generation rises up and the Martell Mill is inherited by their next generation who do half the business of the Packard Mill and eventually sell that mill to the Packards. And then and then they die of uh, food poisoning and lightning strikes. So there's that that um, that Martell luck that um, leaves Pete their only heir. Um, and, you know, it also basically leaves Ezekiel Packard and his son. Andrew able to proceed free of competition. Next thing that comes up in continuity, we've got the blizzard of 1889 that tears through. Um, it came off of Blue Pine Mountain, but it looked clear if you looked at Whitetail Mountain, according to observers at the time. You get this crazy number, the 43 citizen parish in the first 10 minutes of the blizzard. The way it's described in the book, there, there seems to be a moral to the way that humanity versus nature is portrayed here. Explained best between a few lines the mountains don't care, we do. And James Packard's pleading, we are industrious. Why are we not blessed? So, um, you know, there's the theme in Twin Peaks that nature does what it does, probably cyclically, and uh, people can't control it, especially not the settlers who are comfortable in the region's melancholy and regularly find themselves suffering misfortune. So there's a few other natural disasters noted. There's the smallish earthquake of 1905. There's a fire in 1896 that burns down the old opera house, uh, which supposedly was built in 1882, as I mentioned, burned down in 1896 and rebuilt by 1915. Then we get the World Wars coming through, which is when we get some details about Daisy Packard running the mill. And, you know, that basically shows that Catherine's mom is also a force to be reckoned with. And that Catherine doesn't fall too far from the tree. Then we get one more fire burning down a building, and it's the Grange, uh, which burns down in 1953 during a snowstorm. And basically, the Grange was like the center of town. It was kind of where um, you know the the town hall was. The uh, all the city government seemed to operate in there, and um, it was the only undamaged building from the smallish earthquake of 1905. Uh, oh yeah, and it, it housed the sheriff's office, the county seat, chamber of commerce, voting hall, patron of husbandry and Pierre's Smoke and News Cafe. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of stuff in this building. And, um, yeah, burning down in the middle of a snowstorm. Interesting. The margin feature showed that this town center was even visited by Harry S. Truman, which is inspiring the town's sheriff's name years later. But, yeah, it was revealed that arson was the cause, and... Um, it ended up hitting neighbor against neighbor. So, you know, either arson is just a cyclical event in Twin Peaks, regardless of whether a horn starts it, or it's a sign that the horns are at it again somehow on their way to becoming the central importance of the town. So, yeah, like the, the, center, of the center of the town seemed to go through the Grange, and a horn wanted that to be the Great Northern instead, maybe. I don't know. You know, either way, it's a mark of how 
prosperity ends and fear asserts itself. And um, I mean, essentially, Twin Peaks is kind of stuck in time from that point forward. You know, similarly, the old opera house went dormant until Ben revives it in the 80s. And, um, you know, the end of the Great Railroad era kind of happened around then, too. And it's shown with the train graveyard, which is the page after the Grange. The section speaks to the death of the Great Railroad era. um, And um, the page characterizes the trains as if they were noble, majestic beasts. The section ends up equating the end of their era to be the same level of tragedy as the death of Laura Palmer, even though they don't say her by name, even though, you know, they practically come out and say it. Some of the words referring to the train cards, it says, now together in the graveyard, they witness things which could they tell you or could they tell us would chill our bones and rob our nights of sleep. So, yeah, I'd like to think that's the uh, the in-universe writer of that entry thinking of Laura when they wrote that. And um, it was one of the only ways in the access guide to pay respects to her importance to the show. So between the Grange, the Opera House, and the Train Graveyard, it basically seems like all progress, you know, aside from the Mill and the Great Northern, of course, stops in the 50s. So does that kind of explain the 50s aesthetic? Uh, to the whole town. I mean, even fashion seemed to stop there. Football kind of kept going a little bit later than that. But, you know, even even football uh, seems to be stuck in the past because in the sports section, it's a seven-page area of the whole book. And um, every inch of those seven pages is devoted to the perfect season of the 1968 steeplejack football team you know it doesn't even try to name drop current quarterback bobby briggs or anything you know thematically this is another instance of how twin peaks is kind of ruled by the past okay so now that we've gotten to the point where twin peaks is kind of stuck in the past let's look at my next big question which is what can we learn from twin peaks circa 1989 so first of all in the um in the section called the packard mill today We get a look at its saw blades, its cutting molds, uh, illustrations of how it cuts trees into two-by-fours and (laughs) four-by-eights. It's, uh, you know, businessy as far as, like, how how it goes about its business, but it's a bit stuck in the past itself. You know, there's a joke about the company bragging about the last injury-free year being 19 years earlier, along with a comment against big business where safety comes just after profit and management perks. And of course, let's not forget that it's halted physically as well. The mill fire is mentioned, and, um, This section is the only major reference to the employees of the mill, though, you know, once again, no mention of the future plans of how or when rebuilding will occur. You know, this is as much foresight as they're giving to the to the stalled progress in this book. It says now that the mills burn to soot, though. The tours are likely to discontinue. Call the Twin Peaks uh, Chamber of Commerce to check. So yeah, the only thing they're going to include in this book, as far as uh, <laughs> is any stoppages to the mill, is about the tours. Well, okay, if that's what you want to be concerned with. But anyway, the mill is about lumber, and um, the wood motif is pretty much everywhere in this. Um, you know, the the mill has an on-hand wood mistress, Helga Brown who listens to the wood to see its future function. Uh, More on her later. And, um, you know, then we have the Joy of Whittling section. So, you know, uh, 
even even a local hobby is turning wood into something different, kind of like, you know, playing to what the mill does at an industrial level. And the, uh, the flora section contains eight pages of all the plants and trees that you'll come across, which, you know, among other things, contains don't try this at home kind of remedies for poison ivy. Wood is so important to the town that its official flower is a pine cone, which is, you know, okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I consider that, like, one of those silly, absurd, funny jokes that this book wants to represent to us. And it is pretty silly. A nod to the show we've got in the local wildlife. It includes the pine weasel. Um, there's a section on antlers, and, um, you know, that kind of puts a pin on the visual trend in the show of seeing antlers every once in a while. The process of taxidermy is detailed here, too, to go probably with Tim and Tom's taxidermy. But um, it proves that the town considers it a hobby to create a certain level of lifelike from death. And while there's four pages devoted to owls and their connections to local legends, which I'll obviously be going into later. There are six pages devoted to fish and fishing, thanks to a look inside Pete Martell's process and tackle box. And um, on a page of lure varieties, we get a nod to Harry's green butt skunk lure, which he gives to Cooper as a premature goodbye present. As far as noteworthy locations other, other than the mill, uh, we've got places related to said nature in uh, quick advertisement spots throughout the book. We've got, you know, antler repair, headers by head. We, we put together what nature tears apart. Slice and carve. We can put an edge on anything, even your teeth. Fish or cut, uh, yeah, fish or cut bait shop. Hike and bike. And, of course, Tim and Tom's taxidermy. We get a rare moment of something being re revitalized with Ben Horn uh, credited as reviving the old opera house in 1982, though he did it by restoring the interiors to original architect specs, so it lives, but in the past, and of course off screen. The most we hear about the Great Northern is a blurb at the beginning of the lodging section where it boasts about the variety of its 102 rooms, and then we get a floor plan of its lobby and um, a nod to the timber room also. There's bus trips to Whitetail Falls every day at 3 p.m. Um, the, the guide includes Owl Cave, which I'll be mentioning later. Uh, and then the double R, which I'll also go into in a bit, uh, gets glowing and expansive respect here, unlike that uh, gross-sounding M.T. Wentz review in the National Papers. You can walk through Black Lake Cemetery, where the book notes recent graves for Laura and Leland Palmer by name. And the Twin Peaks Chamber of Commerce posts its budget, where we learn that the Twin Peaks government spends its money on. There's a category for membership, which is uh, corporate, individual, and delinquent, <laughs> and the quantity of each. And then there's a category for income, where we learn Miss Twin Peaks brings in almost half of the annual revenue, followed by a category on expenses. And the town's at a balance of negative $422,318, but only due to a pending lawsuit from a sack race injury at the 4th of July picnic. So there we have a joke about the perils of litigiousness, or, you know, everybody being lawsuit crazy in the early 90s. The other joke on this page is how the nighttime security is otherwise known as Sparky the Watchdog. 
Now, as far as things that you can do in Twin Peaks, you know, the travel guide, of course, needs to put in a bunch of those. There's an every five or so years event called the Passion Play that the mysterious Bookhouse Boys put on, and I will 100% be discussing that later. But more public-facing events show up on a four-and-a-half-page calendar of community activities and events. And this calendar, kind of like how the phone book starts with first names, um... This calendar oddly starts in December and skips over June and November. December had the candle lighting and Christmas tree ceremony, along with the preschoolers' magi pageant, uh, complete with live camels and sheep. Uh, it goes all day. Carolers sing, turn of the sen- uh, sing in turn of the century costumes, and Miss Twin Peaks turns on all the lights at the end. Uh, January has Scandinavian tradition called uh, Winter Skull, which involves a lot of drinking and ice castle competition. February has the annual chess tournament, which Pete presides over. Past noteworthy challengers include v- Vladimir Nabokov, the author. March has my favorite of the events, the Caribou Festival, which takes place instead of uh, St. Patrick's Day. Competitors dress head-to-toe in fur and try to replicate the most accurate imitation of the caribou mating call, which, oh boy, that sounds lovely. Uh, And why do I think it's so funny? Uh, Well, because I imagine Josie, the character most often seen in fur coats, uh, choosing to forego her dignity and compete in this thing. And, you know, who knows? Maybe Harry likes it. April shows the Yellow Lupine Festival has a 10K run, and it is also what the Miss Twin Peaks competition is supposedly part of. In May, we've got the Gardens and Home Tour, where residents open their homes to the public after furious cleaning. It's put on by a secret women's philanthropic society known as the PEO, And it's never mentioned again, but it could be the equivalent to the Bookhouse Boys. We'll never know about that society. July has the 4th of July celebration, and there's lots of events like the inner tube races, and we get our first mention of the Wagon Wheel Bakery here. Um, Angelo Wong, a restaurant owner to be mentioned later, is the guy behind the extravagant fireworks display. It really gives a... uh, lived in whole damn town kind of feeling when names like Wong, Tim and Toms and even Ungwin Packard keep popping up in uh, in different contexts throughout the book. Like there's a good history in the town. July and August has the Twin Peaks Timber Players, which is organized in 1974 by Sarah and Leland Palmer, putting on three plays a year for theater between the bleachers in high school in the high school's gymnasium. September is where the Packard Timber Games, founded in 1910 by James Packard, are listed, even though its own three pages section uh, places it happening in August. Uh, again, you know, they're not too... Uh, too married to their dates in in uh, Twin Peaks creation. The uh, the Packard Timber Games take place a half a mile north of Sparkwood and Twenty One. Its its seven events are caber toss, spin off, high climb, bury the hatchet, which Hawk is stereotypically the master of, stone throw, and trunk chop. Each event is described in a short paragraph, sometimes logistically and sometimes with silly anecdotes that happened in past events. And um, there are also large illustrations of men competing in some of the events. 
And in an in a detail that I kind of like, uh, the event's prize is called the Wooden Thing. October has the Halloween Parade, which the high school float reenacts historical events like the smallish earthquake of 1905, and the Horns float has Emery Battis on it, you know, the guy who ran the perfume counter and uh, dies in One-Eyed Jack. He's on it, dressed like a druid, and um, throughout this um, calendar of events, the entire section's margins are left empty, um, except for October, where we see an illustration of, you know, the Groucho Marx-inspired fake nose and glasses disguise. That, I assume, is a joke and, you know, constitutes what could pass for a Halloween costume in Twin Peaks. Now, as far as beyond the people that I've already mentioned, there are noteworthy people in this book. You know, along with the folks that I have mentioned recently, there's a reference to Theosophy in the mill section with Bill Gross, who's the manager of holding and drying, who declares himself a Theosophist. And, um, you know, as Mark Frost is betting the show's mythology and Theosophist beliefs, it only stands to reason the characters he creates would be tuned into that philosophy somewhat regularly. Though all Bill really does is make a comment how arson may or may not have been the cause of the fire that started in the drying shed of the Packard Mill. Mayor Milford shows up. Uh, he begins the book with a handwritten note where, you know, it, it, it's complete with scribbled out words, and it sets the tone for self-deprecation and hatred this book uses for comedic effects sometimes. It suggests, you know, when you, when you get to Twin Peaks, he suggests you get out, which, you know, doesn't mean leave town because it's scary. Uh, it means get outside, enjoy the town, um, ask random strangers, do you have that $10 you owe me as a greeting and you know aside from being more teasing in nature than his temperament on the show the words could reasonably be attributed to Dwayne is this thing on Milford and um, Milford's note is actually dated April 1st which is a pretty good clue that the people making this book think they're writing jokes my instinct says someone on the excess press side wrote this but um, no one's owned up to the handwriting on page three, we get from the will of Andrew Packard, where we get to hear about Andrew Packard a bit, too. His angle on the book, really, with an exception from his will that declares a sum of the money to the town treasury that he used to create this book, extolling and promulgating the many virtues and points of interest of our beloved community. So, you know, there we have the in-universe reason why this book exists, but it doesn't exactly justify why the book was completed, uh, because the the book places him as presumed dead enough to put the funds in motion to create the book, but also lists him being alive. So if this were a more serious book, I'd be curious why in-universe production continued on it even after Packard was revealed to be alive. Now, as far as Andrew's tone of voice, I believe Packard's sense of civic pride is genuine based on his giddy approval of Audrey exercising her rights of civil disobedience for the uh, greater good of the town. And you know, he'd be the kind of guy who'd want his town to proudly sing its own praises. 
Now, throughout the book, we get main characters from the show having little bios uh, placed in the margins as the book progresses. So, and, and, you know, they're placed for thematic reasons, too. I mean, Dale Cooper is in there, but he's placed in the whittling section, you know, partly because he has no other connection to the town officially and because the prop for Cooper's whittled whistle is included here. In here, we've got Dale linked with the, with the Theophysist Society and um, in his in his um, bio details it says an unnamed tragic incident has happened in Dale's recent past so it implies here that the death of Caroline Earl is recent but you know that was closer to 10 years earlier according to the autobiography of Dale Cooper my life my tapes which you know I just did an episode on in length in some ways you know 10 years ago might be recent but it's not the year before, like the final dossier in this book seems to think it is. There's a phrase in Cooper's bio that says, you know, he might well have been a magician or mystic. So it has the show's writers connecting Dale to the only identity mentioned in the Fire Walk With Me poem. It's never been more explicitly connected than right here that Dale is like the enigmatic magician that longs to see. We get Josie Packard's bio included in the town founders section, maybe because she is the current owner of the mill. And, um... Was it really a coincidence that Josie's bio shared a margin with an anecdote about Oscar Wilde visiting the town? Uh, because we knew at this point that Josie was already dead upon Access Guide's publication, even though it's not mentioned here. And uh, Oscar Wilde was apparently already dead for a few years when the book says that he visited the town. So there we have you know, a sliding scale on dates. It's, it's an interesting thematic connection that's probably just a happy accident. But so with other characters, we've got Catherine Martell, and you can tell that the authors were having fun with her margin bio. She's in the mill section, and uh, her preferences are listed as the horn, and, um, you know, putting quotes, uh, quote marks around Elvis Presley to turn him into a euphemism, probably. I suspect the writers are also a fan of uh, Piper Laurie's early films and felt inspired, let's say. The uh, flora section contains, contains the margin bios for Dr. Jacoby, the Log Lady, and Hawk. Alongside details on local plants, Jacoby is labeled as a sometimes naturalist, and I assume they're implying that he's a pot smoker here. But they also share the lovely detail that surfaced on Jacoby's trading card and later in Secret History that his glasses, you know, the, the colored lenses in his glasses, balance the right and left side of his brain. And I love that detail in so many different ways, and I'm so happy that it's always been part of his character. Alongside details on local trees and two pages after an illustration of her ponderosa pine log is the margin bio for the log lady and you know they don't give her credit for being named margaret lanterman but they do credit glastonbury grove among her bests and i find that interesting um you know did the writers know already at the time about her jar of scorched engine oil but about Hawk's uh, margin bio, it's on the page filled with absurd humor about poison ivy and how how to deal with it or not deal with it. As far as uh, Hawk, yeah, I'm really glad that only the timber games were mentioned in Hawk's bests list, you know, rather than his stereotypical timber game specialty, Bury the Hatchet, as they mention uh, later on in the book, I mean. 
Now, Pete Martell is mentioned, and I mean included in the fauna section, and we get to hear him tell us a fish story. We get to go through his tackle box, and he gives uh, hints on fishing, among other things. And there's a pictorial list of lures right near him as well. You know, just images uh, like in a grid shape. And um, that's where we get the green butt, which, you know, is, uh, as I mentioned, Harry Truman's goodbye present to Dale. And that kind of tells me that Harry learned everything he knows about fishing from Pete. We've got Ed Hurley included in the in the beginning section because his gas farm is located exactly on the westernmost coastline of the continent before the collision that formed the mountains. Obviously, these pages are huge for lore, but how'd Big Ed and his gas farm get placed there? If I had to guess it, it's uh, a perfect confluence of how are we going to connect this stuff to modern-day Twin Peaks and where are we going to put Big Ed's bio? The effect turns out to be an endearing way to frame the past, but it ends up being more thematically connected than that. You know, anyone who watched season three credit sequence where Ed eats soup at the gas farm, you can make a case for it being another of those in-between places like the Great Northern or the Roadhouse. Um, You know, being on the shoreline between the old coastline and the new coastline fits well with that portrayal, and whether intentional or from happenstance, and I assume it's more a happy accident. As far as cute details in his bio, it says, Ed enjoys a good cup of coffee and an intimate conversation at the double R. So, you know, only one intimate conversation, and we know who that's with. And um, Norma Jennings' uh, bio is, of course, in the double R pages. Talks about her successful business skills and things like her hallucinatory meatloaf recipe. And, um, you know, file it under cute jokes. Norma likes talking to Big Ed and believes in longer prison terms terms. <laughs> you know, of course, that's a nod to Hank. James Hurley's bio feature is among the dining out section where we get um, a number of restaurants listed. And all I can think is that all those restaurants must be on the open road where he likes to drive. You know, not much to James being included or not. We we also get uh, Trudy Chelgren, uh, the double margin feature that flanks uh, the area with notes on the Great Northern's food selection. We get Will Hayward having a margin bio, and it's located alongside the Twin Peaks Timber Players section, even though it doesn't mention any affinity or participation uh, towards performing. So, so, you know, maybe it has something to do with his comforting bedside manner or that maybe he's across from Leland Palmer and the cemetery. Thematically, it all feels correct. Maybe it's due to the fact that his actor, Warren Frost, did this kind of job in Minnesota where his son Mark was when his son Mark was growing up. You know, what else was Warren Frost's character go- going to feel more at home in the access guide? Uh, they don't have a note on the hospital, so this will be it. Will's bio lists that he's an expert in euthanasia, and I assume the detail isn't there to say he's some kind of killer. Uh, Rather, it's probably a nuanced way to say that Doc knows many ways to show compassion. But yeah, I mean, as uh, as Khalil said in um, in his guest appearance with Colin on Cream Corn in the Universe, and like I've said in previous episodes of this show, it's kind of suspicious that Will Hayward kind of looks away from things rather than, you know, trying to discover the truth of like, you know, say why Laura was killed. He just wants to get her in the ground and give her respect. So that's kind of, uh, you know, having, having a specialty toward euthanasia is kind of... Kind of a, you know, rather than
than trying to um, maybe find out why someone might want to die and solve that. It, it's kind of like, you know, burying the problem in a way. So it kind of fits him. Now, also with the complicated characters, Leland Palmer, as I said, had his margin bio across from Will's, um, across from his own timber players that he and Sarah founded. Leland's margin bio reveals that he's an expert on international corporate law, which is probably what Ben Horn loves him for. And then his recent demise is a loss to all tells me that the town is not aware of his complicated role in Laura's murder. You know, they know that Andrew Packard is still alive, but um, as far as uh, Leland Palmer, we don't really know about the whole Bob thing, or maybe the town just likes to look away from it. And we've got Harry Truman's bio placed alongside the page for a proposed prison facility. Did they not want to include the sheriff's station and reveal just how many officers are on staff? Or did they just want to seed future show plot lines? I'll be going into that a lot, uh, a lot later. Some of the words in Harry's bio, he likes cowboy hats and oriental dishes and admits to be lonely from time to time. So yeah, I mean, there's a nod toward Josie. Yes, yes. And then we've got Ben Horn's margin bio listed alongside the old opera house rather than the Great Northern, which is alongside details like him valuing uh, U.S.-Canada uh, US relations, etc. So, you know, that's a nod toward One-Eye Jacks. And I find Ben Horn's bio interesting due to his listed belief in the restorative power of song. So not only does that match with the prominence of the Roadhouse musicians in season three or Audrey dancing in the diner because it's too dreamy, it also links to, to Ben's ability to hear the humming in the Great Northern. You know, like when he spins toward the camera in episode 27, uh, hearing a hum. It's nice to see such a thematic foundational detail dropped into this frivolous book. And hearing about how Ben reacts to a hum, it makes me feel like we're ready to go on to the next question, which is, how does Twin Peaks interact with the senses? Okay, so first of all, let's step back and um, look at the fact that this is a physical book. I know this is like nothing to do with the lore exactly, but there's a final page in this book that consists of a mail order form for Simon & Schuster where you can check here in a green box for the autobiography of FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper, My Life, My Tapes, and or The Secret Diary of Laura, of Laura Palmer, both priced at eight ninety five. And um, first of all, that's the price of books back then. And uh, second of all, can you imagine that this this ad supposes that you would actually tear the page out of the guide, fold it up, put your address on the form, add a stamp, and then send it out with the mail. I mean, can you even imagine doing that to a book in the first place? And can you even imagine doing any kind of ordering like that anymore? Like, it's such a time capsule. But, you know, back to the contents of the book again. Let's look at style. So, um, in a town initially popular due to a beaver hat trend, current fashion 
makes a comeback on page 97, seemingly included so that the book could mention Mr. Richard Tremaine. Though there is no margin bioform, the margin does contain something, and it's the Horns logo, an Art Deco font, which, um, it's pretty classy. Now, on page 98-99, we get a few alternatives to Horns department store, so there actually is an ecosystem of fashion, wardrobe kind of stuff. There's the utilitarian Ed Strimble's Workers' Warehouse, and a place that focuses on art and jewelry called Carlson's Odd Shop. And um, this is also where we get to see the show's promotional shots by Paula Shimatsuu being credited as locals in a uh, Pixian way to model the local looks in a pre-Ambercrombie and Fitch way, maybe. It's fun that they would hire local people to uh, show off the style of the town in a way. And then, you know, that's where we see the locally designed pieces of furniture that I still think are designed by Lynch. Now, one of the most important senses that Twin Peaks has always dealt with and uh, does very well in this book is food and drink. And it starts pretty early on. I mean, in the margin along the old opera house is an ode to the versatile Huckleberry. Plain as the description is in this, um, I bet the page's ode has mostly to do with being a nod to Major Briggs's professed love for the double R's huckleberry pie that he expresses early in um, season two. But of course, the main draw for food and drink uh, involves the double R. And um, it starts on page 77, which is a location shot of the double R counter all the way to the back wall, including that giant ice cream cone. Um, there's a list of daily specials, and there's a total mythology with multiple interpretations around possible origins for Twin Peaks becoming a donut crazy town. Not that that has anything to do exactly with the double R specifically, because we know about the uh, the Wagon Wheel Bakery. But um, I, I love the different stories because, like everything else, there's no actual definitive answer by the page's end. You know, we just get a couple of different alt uh, options for why. And um, probably none of them are quite right. But um, on the bottom half of page 76, we get an explanation of the feeding frenzy known as Lumberjack Feast, uh, which is held the last Sunday of the month at the fire department. All we learn here about it is that Big Ed can really pack the pancakes, so much so that the uh, the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast podcast equates Ed with Kirby, you know, the Nintendo character that can just inhale everything and it goes nowhere. Uh, the only other detail that this book mentions about the Lumberjack Feast is, uh, for more information, uh, you should call 911. So, uh, yeah, they, they understand how absurd it actually is to devour that many pancakes all the time. So near this, there's also two pages of, of short descriptions of about a half dozen local restaurants, as well as the Great Northern Timber Room's uh, capabilities and a nod to the Lamplighter Inn, uh, which, you know, of course, is famous for being mentioned in Dale Cooper's first monologue. Also mentioned is fireworks expert Angelo Wong's Italian Thai restaurant, which sounds amazing. And 
um, Ace's Barbecue, uh, both of which, you know, I'd really love to try if they exist in real life. And the Great Northern's Timber Room is also recommended, along with details on the Great Northern itself. And we get a two-page establishing shot of the Great Northern's interior as well, complete with the famous lobby fireplace where Cooper and John Justice Wheeler share their only scene while pontificating on love. There's a small floor plan with the Great Northern's lobby, the bio on Trudy, and short paragraphs on the Great Northern Hotel along with other lodging options such as Leanne's Country Inn, Snow Street Inn, the Willow Inn, Pine View Motel, which is where Philip Gerard stayed, and Ben and Catherine held tryst there, um, the Cozy Bed and Breakfast, and Mrs. Thrimble's Bed and Breakfast. You don't get any menus there, but that's okay. What we do get in this book, instead of things like menus, we get actual recipes that you can make. First of all, um, in the early sections, uh, you know, like where, when the settlers are still settling in, there's a there's a recipe for the little Scotty, and Rachel Stewart. Um, wrote a little bit about the little Scotty for my access guide article over at 25YL. Um, It's called A Little Scotty Goes a Long Way, or TL colon DR. This is a strong effing drink. So it's two parts bourbon, one part rye, one dash of drambouille, and a twist of lime. And Rachel says... The Drambuie adds a nice sweet note you'd you'd get if you were ordering an old-fashioned or Manhattan. If you're a fan of the Rusty Nail, I'd give this one a try. The Access Guide recommends pairing the tipple with cheese and crackers, but I prefer it as a digestif or nightcap. Just don't make it a double, or you'll end up feeling like you're in the pink room from Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. We get another recipe for chocolate donuts for 106. There are giant illustrations of a variety of donuts and details about the Wagon Wheel Bakery, uh, which is the supplier of all those spreads that we see at the sheriff's station. And um, their donut recipe is listed here, but it's for an order of 106. And none of us have a fryer set up, so we couldn't test this one for you. Also, what we didn't test is on, hmm, on page 84 in the margin, we get Eileen Hayward's Coffee for a Crowd, which serves 40 to 250 servings. So as with the donuts, 25YL didn't have the space to test that recipe. So um, that's coffee and donuts both represented. But the crown jewel is the two-page spread of the actual cherry pie recipe. And yeah, it matches the one on the trading card. It mentions that you can get this served at Dupar's, the real restaurant in California. And uh, Rachel Stewart graciously baked it as another portion of my Access Guide article. where And you can actually see her pictures that goes through the whole process, you know, from the the crust to the 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 top the uh, the lattice you know all, all that stuff and then like what it looks like after it's done being baked as well and um uh, rachel titled the segment this pie is a miracle and i'm going to read a good portion of it here first comes the crust which is flour crisco and ice water added at the exact right time mixed together until you have a ball of dough that can sit overnight in the fridge the filling uses frozen cherries which you let sit out overnight and thaw letting the letting their ruby red liqueur seep out from the saucy bit once all the components have had their overnight nap uh, yeah Once all of the components have had their overnight nap wrapped in plastic, 
Then you can get on to assembling the pie. I tended to the pie crust first, then the filling, which came together quickly despite having to wait for it to cool. My lattice work was a rustic effort at best, but it smelled heavenly during the bake. Maybe this is where pies go to die. And then it came down to the hardest bit yet, waiting for it to cool. I made it the better part of the day and shared the pie with friends, and it was good. The cherry filling was tart and sweet, and the crust was buttery. Everything an FBI agent could dream of. The recipe note about adding more or less sugar is spot on, and if I ever make it again, I'd try it with, with dark cherries, which would warrant an extra spoonful of sugar. And back to me, your, your podcaster, I love how time and patience is an actual requirement for the recipe. It makes me think of mindfulness and the love Norma puts into it. Very on brand, intentional or not. Thanks again, Rachel, for being our baker. And while that's about the extent of food and drink, we also have a whole bunch on sound. And um, I've, I've mentioned around this stuff, but um, okay, the Whitetail Falls, you know, from, from Josie's Margin bio, you know, the power, the power of the rushing falls. She says, the sound of the water of Whitetail roaring when I feel like a rushing torrent falling. And on the actual page for the falls, it says, meet your love, a margin note, um, is what this is. So magical are the powers of Whitetail Falls that anyone who has ever fallen in love within the sound of their plunging water remains in love forever. So, um, you know, first of all, tell that to Mike and Nadine, but you know, whatever. <laughs> and, um, you know, the sound of the water kind of gives a positive frequency for people to fall into. So, yeah, they talk about the sound of the falls. They also talk about radio music. Uh, page 83 contains a list of every song in the Double R jukebox, and it leaves off any reference to Angelo Battlemente songs, but otherwise it has a good assortment of tunes found on genuine radio stations of the day. Um, it contains a lot of real-world uh, singles with their actual B-sides. And, um, you know, among other things, it was only a hit from three years ago at that point, but... Um, the the diner the diner jukebox proves that never going to give you up is timeless on the transportation page the margin lists all the local radio stations that you can come across there's country and western with a dash of all things considered the npr program timber news and weather old comedy programs classic rock bluegrass cbc radio canada and classical music and you know yet again here is shut out Angelo Badalamente music that we actually hear on the show's radios. Now, filed under live music, while there's no major mention of the Roadhouse, the old opera house boasts previous performance by Sarah Bernhardt, Charlie Chaplin, and the Guess Who, and it's important enough to the town's culture that Ben Horn tries to revive its prominence in the early 80s. As far as the sound of the owls, um... As early as the section on the founders of Twin Peaks, there's this running joke that only people who stay in the area don't tire of thick, gloomy forest and the disturbing sounds of owls. So, yeah, the disturbing sounds of owls. And uh, Dominic Renault, who I'll go into later, mentions the infernal sounds of owls. And them um, from Sparkwood in 21, after I brought up the idea of owls of Twin Peaks particularly harmonizing in diminished sevenths, suggests the following. Schoenberg had written about the diminished, se <laughs> the diminished seventh whenever one wanted to express pain. 
excitement, anger, or some other strong feeling. There we find, and almost exclusively, the diminished seventh chord. She and her co-host Steve had no problem believing that owls from Twin Peaks could and would convey different emotions than normal owls. And, you know, bringing up all these senses and bringing up the owls in particular makes me want to go on to our next question, which is, what can we learn about Twin Peaks lore and the season three that could have been on ABC in the 1991-1992 TV season? So, first of all, the theosophy connections that the show's lore uses as scaffolding are active in this book. Bill Gross from The Mill is an active theosophist, and the um, Where to Worship pages includes the Theosophist Society, which notes appearances from Pete Martell, The Log Lady, and Agent Cooper, which will, right there, actively code Cooper as vibing with the town's mystical underbelly, which you know also tracks with some of, his, er, some of Theosophy's roots being rooted in Buddhism, which he's also got an interest in. And honestly, while we're in the religion page, we also learn that the Hurleys, Pulaskis, and Packards are Catholic, the Haywards and Horns are Episcopalian, the Palmers, Briggs, and Jennings are Lutheran, uh, and that tracks with the, uh, with the funeral that we see for Laura and the repast we see for Leland. And uh, the Haywards and Horns both being Episcopalian means that, yeah, they would have noticed uh, Audrey at church or not. And there's finally more listed here about the circulars that were... Um, unmentioned since the Owl Cave entry. In the margin, it's a tribe of perhaps 50 to 62 members who believe in the circular nature of existence and also eating the flesh of fellow humans to assume nobler aspects of their victims. I mean, it's definitely there to be strange in some ways. And, you know, of course, the circular thing, we get that too. But um, I I tend to like the uh, the next page's margin a little bit better. It's an illustration of a stag head with a cross of light between its antlers. It's associated with Saint Hubert. Surprisingly, a real thing. Now back to the owls. The um, the owls signify the weirdness of the region probably better than any other single element, at least in this book. And uh, they they have a they have an entry called the Owls Club, which you know I wanted that to mean something, but it seems to be in name only. It, you know, it's described very much like an elks club, except you know it has elks mounted on the wall. Um, and I suspect this is another one of those moments where Werman and his Access Press team uh, tried to mirror the show and take it to an odder place. But, you know, the Owls Club right here turns out to be more of a Mike and Bob, Mike and Bobby kind of thing where there's, you know, the uh, the the double naming kind of motif, which, you know, is still Twin Peaksy at least. More about what I mean about the Owls is how the early settlers are the only people who don't tire of the, uh, the thick, gloomy forest and the disturbing sounds of the owls so the owls are noteworthy for like you have to be able to handle them in order to stay in the area and we've got dominic renault who set out from montreal to discover the northwest passage he fled south when unsuccessful and started a trading post off black lake and about this guy we find out that fragments of his diary show he's a gloomy man given to extended depression and spoke with animals and um, he disappeared, but it suggested that he mated with owls, his anguished voice becoming a part of them in an endless and misty forest. So we 
we see this negatively aligned Dominic Renault being part of the forest, becoming part of the forest and its wildlife, which we can infer to mean that he too had a lodge-related experience. On page 45, we get the creation of the owl, which is a single-page fable about a daughter being convinced by her mother to fly away as an owl, and then the mother takes her daughter's skin to eat the food and sleep with her son-in-law. The daughter tells him what's happening. Uh, he ends up killing the mother, and he also has to leave his skin, as it was his only way to be with his wife again. So I can't see it any other way than being yet another lodge space interaction under a different name, you know? We have a mother negatively coercing her daughter to become part of the woods. The mother is killed for her hubris. The daughter's rescuer has to enter the lodge for any hope of being with her, and they can't get out unscathed. And it basically sounds like we've heard a variation of the first point with Laura Palmer's story, the second with Leland's story after he kills Maddie, and the last point in episode 29 with Cooper and Annie. Can you see it too? The margin feature on this page tries to be scientifically grounded, but um, that can't even seem to not make connections between the great horned owl and lodge denizens because they talk about how the owl sees in total darkness, which, you know, that fits well when, you know, considering especially the Black Lodge over the other one. But there's a way that owls almost see sound. Um, there's this triangulating sound collected on the, um, on the feathery disks around their eyes. Um, you know, one could call them circles in front of their eyes. You know, it's almost like they see sound. And we've, um, we've seen already in the access guide that it values the importance of sound frequencies. So, you know, it, it matches well with everything else. And then if you flip the page one more time, over the two-page spread is uh, the picture of the owl in the final frozen moments from the end of episode 16. And there's the heading, Owlwise by Firelight. So the overlaid words are poetic. You know, they're describing the outdoors at night by firelight, um, followed by the appearance of an owl, then its mate, and there's sounds of a perfect thirds chord. Uh, the writer is certain that the owls know what people do not, and the passage ends with a thought that the owls' wings will one day engulf them and tell them things they want to know as well as the things they don't. What I wrote in my Access Guide article is, uh, is this. Writing on the coattails of page 45's legend, this section could be the thesis statement of Twin Peaks Season 2, possibly even Twin Peaks as a whole. Finding a mate allows for harmonizing in perfect thirds. That makes love the key to creating a harmonically balanced chord. A diminished seventh comes from dread, an aspect of fear. Love versus fear is the major theme of season two, most notably in how those two emotions are the keys to opening the door between worlds. Not dread, but connection with our past is what we feel implies so much that I can't quite articulate, but I can say what this literally says. Connections and the understanding of how you got to your present are positive forces, the opposite of dread. Therefore, they are adjacent to love. Now, looking more into sounds and frequencies specifically, yeah, the owls are creating frequency with each other. Um, 
In concert, they often harmonize in perfect thirds, though around Twin Peaks, diminished sevenths are heard. Which means owls here are less on the love frequency, perhaps? You know, Dominic Renault, who is seen as, like, depressed and, um, you know, having mental problems, um, his anguished voice becoming a part of them in the endless and misty forest, and, you know, how owls echolocate in the first place. Yeah, so the owls are just connected to this thing. The energy of the town just kind of flows through them in a way. And then there's a bunch of other random kind of frequencies going about, like how Tom, Tom's blind taxiing, uh, seems to rely on sound and intuition and um, also listening to his uh, brother describe things and then it becomes visual for him. So um, is um, is Tom kind of echolocating via intuition? You know, then we heard it with the love frequency that can show up with the sound and power of the falls. Um, you know, there's the hum of Ben Horn that Ben Horn spins towards his fireplace to see, and he's interested in the healing power of music. Therefore, he can feel the frequencies. And you know, there's Jacoby's glasses putting him in balance between the two visual frequencies of uh, red and blue. Then there's listening to the wood. You know, even after it's cut down. You know, on the Log Lady's margin bio, she lists among her best long walks in the woods and listening to the mysterious knowledge of her log. Now, we already knew she was connected to this stuff, but so is this character named Helga Brager. Uh, she's the wood mistress of the Packard Mill, whatever that means. Is that her actual title? You know, regardless, it appears to be a paid and respected job of the mill from, you know, from all the signs. What does a wood mistress do? Well, she selects what wood is turned into what kind of product. She knows what the wood will become because she listens to the wood and knows what they want to be. On this page, Brogger is basically likened to be the worldly-leaning counterpart to Margaret Lannerman. They both have conversations with the wood, but it seems Helga's all small talk and flirting, you know, like, hello, handsome, she says that to every piece of wood or whatever, you know, rather than receiving ethereal portents. In a way, it seems the writers are placing Helga between the log lady and the Palmer women as well. After all, she says... It runs in the family, women of vision, the backbone of Twin Peaks. Who else could be implied here besides Margaret, Sarah, Maddie, and Laura? So yeah, that kind of intuition is um, kind of baked into the town. And I mean, that means also that we're looking at connections to the lodges in a way. And yeah, there's been a lot of connections to the lodges for a very long time. I mean, this has been going on a while. I mean, first of all, there's a manifestation that I've mentioned in previous episodes that I equate with Sarah's vision of the white horse, and it's called the White Moose Legend. And I'm going to read a lot from my Access Guide article about this one. The sad legend of the white moose concludes on page 41. A negative image of a moose is at the bottom of the page. Legend tells us the white moose appears on moonlit nights as a ghost. It's mentioned in many characters' written accounts, but only Dominic Renault has claimed to see it, which makes sense, assuming his dark path. Legend has it the moose was the lone survivor of 50 moose that were exterminated by several dozen trappers that trapped them. Now, drained of, drained of his brother's and sister's blood, the white moose appears to those in trouble because it understands the agony of sorrow and despair. 
So there's a lot in this legend. As lodge denizens seem to take on different shapes depending on who's observing them, you know, say the land of Bloon to Unguin Packard, which I'll be talking about, and the owls to Dominic Renault. I wouldn't be shocked if that was meant the white ho- the white moose and white horse weren't one and the same, meaning that they probably are. And I love the detail of the melancholy and forgiving white moose appears to those in trouble because it understands the agony of sorrow and despair. So I asked, was the horse, at least during the days of Twin Peaks' original production, less of a drug metaphor and more a witness to validate and understand someone else's pain? And there's no more apparitions exactly in this book, but um, there are signs of different kinds of gateways. You know, the first one's from the history of the Owl Cave. You know, this book basically sidesteps most of the supernatural, and it pretty much only lists groups that uh, used it for social gatherings or hiding out. You know, I get this book is supposed to be a tourism guide, but it does actually mention that there are messages that had been left in the cave from beyond. And an actual Owl Cave map drawing uh, from the show was actually included. You know, the petroglyph. And, you know, back in pre-internet times, uh, when something like that wasn't actually easy to come by at all, this was probably your best shot at studying its details. Now, an interesting detail about the um, about the Owl Cave is on page 65's margin note. It talks about the extremely secretive society known as circulars, which to me here seems to be a way to include Dugpas under a new name, though, you know, here they're presented strangely. These circulars only claim to fame uh, noted here is that they tried to rename the cave Elk Cave during the Truman presidency years. But it's kind of odd because they're not the only Dugpa adjacent presence, or maybe uh, Emery Battis is part of the circulars. But um, we have this thing in October um, called the Halloween Parade, where the high school float reenacts historical events like the smallish earthquake of 1905, and the horns float has Emery Battis, the guy who can perform, you know, the guy who ran the perfume counter, on it dressed like a druid. So I kind of wonder. If we were meant to make an association with Doug Piz here, or, um, you know, if, if maybe I did that all on my own. Either way, between this and um, the the talk that Dougie Milford makes at the end of this event at the high school about the restorative powers and terror and darkness, it feels kind of like an inadvertent magic ritual is being put on by the whole town. And going back to the early days of the town, there's um, there's James Packard's wife, Ungwen, and she is way more interesting to talk about than James Packard. Some of her details, uh, she was 12 when she arrived, and while they while that might you know just meant as a creepy child bride joke that um, that in greater uh, Twin Peaks terms makes her the same age as Laura Palmer at the beginning of Secret Diary. We find out that Ungwin was dabbling in the mystic arts, which is something that Madame Blavatsky was also doing while popularizing Theosophy. And Ungwin never felt at home in the physical world. Her true home, the Land of Bloon is beyond the solar system. And a detail in the secret history of Twin Peaks, it's inferred that the giant might be from Sirius, which is also well beyond the solar system. So did the writers just imply she's from the Lodge? 
Probably not, but they're they're sure asserting that she's had contact with the lodges at least. So Ungwin's history is seen less as something eccentric and becomes more so a legacy with the creation of Ungwin's Field Observatory. And, you know, first of all, Ungwin's Field Observatory abbreviates to UFO, which at the time was unidentified flying object. And um, culturally, that meant flying saucers with aliens in them. Which, you know, of course, ties into Briggs and his work with Project Blue Book. And um, that meant connections to the White Lodge. Now, page 110 is a reproduction of letterhead from the Twin Peaks Chamber of Commerce and Industry that was actually sent to Ungwin's Field Observatory. The, uh, the note contained a draft of what they wanted to include in the access guide and was sent to Garland Briggs for approval. So, um, yeah, Garland Briggs at least does business there. And instead of a standards uh, reply with likely a margin bio for the major, which, you know, we didn't end up getting, he sent the letterhead back to them with all the classified information blacked out. What was left? Six words at random places on the page. They are, nobody knows the trouble we've caused. So that entry is on the last official story-related page in the book, but, you know, it it turns out to be, even though they kind of drop it there, um, it was a nice way to tie back to the book's beginnings uh, where um, Unguin Packard arrived. So, yeah, that location is named after the first lodge-adjacent settler. And it's nice symmetry to tie Ungwin to Briggs's current Blue Book adjacent work, I think. Now, yeah, okay, so we've tied a few things to the lodge space aspects of Twin Peaks, but there's also potential connections to an intended plot point outside of expanding Briggs's role into an actual location in town. Now, giving Briggs a home base or a new location where he can have scenes in this uh, show, there are also more potential connections to intended plot points that would be coming up by the end of the season and into next year's season three. In that grid of illustrated lures in the fishing section, nearby the green butt skunk lure that I've already mentioned, there's this other one simply named Annie, as in a woman or a lodge entity, mentioning Lindsay Stamhoyas and Aiden Hale's 25YL article, Who's Annie, once again? A woman or a lodge entity who is made to lure Dale into the lodges? I mean, is this more so conjecture or a very wry joke here on behalf of the writers? Yeah, there's room to go either way on intentionality on that one, but I don't think there's any doubt when you look at the passion play. And about the passion play, I'm going to read again pretty heavily from my Access Guide article. And I said, page 68 is probably the most important page in the whole Access Guide. In his Deer Meadow radio interviews, Harley Payton had this to say about uh, about seeding future plot points into the Access Guide. Sometimes we were just doing our jobs and other people would find mystery in it. Then the theories come back to us 
we start implementing them into the show. Now, Peyton's words aside, I am confident that there are elements ripe for use in what could have been the uh, Twin Peaks season three that would have aired during the 91-92 TV season. And this, this page on the Passion Play describes 12 ancient Douglas firs in the form of a circle and appear strong enough to support the sky found in Glastonbury Grove. The first paragraph suggests how the trees have stories to tell, if only they could, and despite a conspicuous lack of the word sycamore, this is where the passion play occurs. So, um, I kind of think the word sycamore comes from the uh, sycamore trees song that Lynch had probably already written at this point for the Ronnie Rocket screenplay that, you know, would have been a forthcoming project anytime after The Elephant Man and up to uh, Lost Highway. So, yeah, I think, you know, Douglas firs are the... Uh, the trees that Cooper is so fascinated by, so that's probably why it's here. And then Lynch saw a few things and decided to put his most important tree, the sycamores, in their rightful place in Glastonbury Grove. It's all conjecture on my part, but the logic is uh, sound enough for me to go with it for until I hear otherwise. Now about what happens in that grove of trees in Glastonbury Grove, here are the particulars. It is an evolving rather than set ritual. It occurs in April, though a specific day and time are never announced. The participants gather around the twelve great firs. Six Cossack figures emerge bearing sword, chrysanthemum, crucifix, and chalice. The mysterious guardian at the gate appears from an untraceable location. Event sponsorship is unknown, but it's rumored to be the ultra-secret Bookhouse Boys. The event lasts all night. At dawn, sunlight obliterates darkness as good, vanquishes evil. And the next Passion Play will occur sometime in April 1992. In the margin, we get a creepy image of a bearded man with white eyes, or with whites for eyes, which to me says doppelganger. And there's also an image of the classic Bookhouse Boys patch. So what's to make of all that? Um, if it's an evolving ritual, the TV writers could make it into any kind of scenario they wanted when the time comes. So yes, it's evolving with the creativity of the writers as well. I said earlier, April of 92 would coincide with when season three's concluding episodes would be airing on our television sets in the real world. So um, the evidence that I said that um, dates in Twin Peaks sync up with the readers rather than the, uh, the internal people. Then about the, um, the items in this um, ritual, the sword, etc., they match up really well with, the, with an Arthurian Grail quest, which, could, which would also go with the sword that Harry receives from a Lodge Space figure in the episode 29 script as well as the Arthurian ties to Theosophy. The guardian at the gate sounds a lot like the uh, the hooded figure silhouetted in the opening scenes of episode 20 during Briggs's uh, questioning at the sheriff's station, and who was also seen bodily in the woods at the time of Briggs's abduction in episode 17. Um... So yeah, what else does this page suggest? Thematically, light and darkness have always been on the show's mind, even longer than the duality of love versus fear. 
I bring up Margaret's lesson of push through the darkness and grow your light that uh, that surfaces blatantly in the final dossier to see it a little more overtly. An interesting detail is how the Bookhouse Boys are ultra-secret. I like the idea that they operate in a town loud enough to be noticed, but quiet enough that the locals making the town's access guide think the battle against darkness in the woods is less of a cyclical battle and more akin to some live-action Portlandia skit. Now, who did the writers have in mind for being players in this passion play? In their margin bios, um, these characters list the passion play among their bests. Pete, Ed, Harry, Doc Hayward. And note that James does not say that, uh, who was actually seen operating with the Bookhouse Boys in some of the earlier episodes of Twin Peaks. He's interested enough to work with the Bookhouse Boys, but not to necessarily be on their passion play staff. So there's certain interesting allegiances also. Uh, Margaret includes Glastonbury Grove among her best, but, you know, not the passion play. And uh, Briggs was not allowed a margin bio to find out if he would have mentioned the passion play or not. And, um, you know, Cooper is new to things, so he gets an excuse, but, you know, he would only be there if invited. So at this point, we've looked at the book about as closely as we can for what was intended at the time for its lore. But there's this whole other avenue of how it changed, how its, um, how its perception could be changed with the new material of Twin Peaks. So that brings us to the last question, which is, what brings new light to the mythology when compared with future pieces of Twin Peaks media? And there are a lot of things that rhyme with elements in 2017 Twin Peaks. There's the frog bug similarities that I mentioned. There's moments of evolving in a lot of ways. Page 30 is all about the lilies found in the region, and its margin has a detail about a Snoqualmie legend of the tribesmen and the mountain lion that help each other, and uh, they turn to lilies when they die. And it makes me think of the intercourse between worlds the arm spoke of in Firewalk With Me, and honestly, it also makes me think of how the arm evolved into a tree. There's a lot of sound. I mean, obviously, Ben Horn's connection to sound I've spoken about. But um, in season three, it's likely he's, uh, he's tuned enough to the sound that he can recognize the barrier between states of reality. Um, you know, whether he can recognize the barrier as a barrier is another thing. But he and Beverly can totally feel it over a few episodes. And, you know, then there's uh, Dominic Renault's, you know, becoming one with the owls again. That kind of reminds me of an evolution, first of all. But it also reminds me of Stephen and Gersten's final season three moments in the woods, where uh, a negatively aligned Stephen makes the sound of a gunshot when we can't see him. And instead of being shown as killed himself, per the final dossier, just like Renault here, uh, he's declared as having disappeared rather than died you know it's like you you kind of like if if you're um negative or disconnected enough 
you can kind of become part of this um, this other level of reality or this other frequency, maybe. And then there's more rhyming with the the Frost books, you know, Secret History of Twin Peaks and Final Dossier with the whole disappearances thing. In addition to disappearing like Stephen, Dominic Renault's story also parallels Secret History, where his final words were found in diary pages. Exactly how similarly shady and missing Denver Bob's story was revealed. And um, Gaston LaRue, a character who's pretty much an afterthought while the book discusses local moss in the floral section, his diary, which is dated in the 1787 range, um, is found near both Owl Cave and his bones. I'm again reminded of the Denver Bob portion of Secret History, especially with the Owl Cave connection, which is where Denver Bob was found. And, you know, other frequencies, you know, Jacoby's glasses, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't add them together at this point in this book. Um, but in secret history, the balancing of the sides of the brain will evolve into the idea that when balanced by the glasses, it creates a purplish hue for the wearer. And the, uh, the purple hue is also used in the mauve zone in part three. Now let's look at how locations kind of changed their point. Um, the the proposal for the high security prison facility for one major thing that felt really out of nowhere in this book when it was you know before uh, 2017. You know maybe we could see it as an inspiration for Buckhorn's prison. But then we get to Final Dossier, and it is 100% connected to the reality that Ben Horn wrought on Twin Peaks after the events of Episode 29, as explored in the pages of Final Dossier, in the form of the Ghostwood Prison. So that leads me to believe that even back in 1991, the for-profit prison system has been on the mind of at least Mark Frost. And it seems that the plot to construct the prison would have been the equivalent of the mill plot when it came to the season three of the 91-92 season. And about that prison in this book, who made the plans for it in this access guide? DLMF Creations. Read that as David Lynch Mark Frost. The, uh, the page says that the majority of council members shoot it down every year, and Sheriff Truman remains on the fence about the whole thing, but Ben Horn recognizes a business opportunity when he sees one. Which, you know, of course is realized, according to Final Dossier, and it's a choice that he seems to regret for the rest of his days, and may be the instigating factors for him leaning into true goodness, quote-unquote, in future continuity. And I'm going to mention Ungwin's Field Observatory again. It's a shame that the observatory was repurposed into Listening Post Alpha for the Secret History of Twin Peaks. But with the book's adversarial relationship being what it is, it's uh, kind of par for the course. And, you know, it also fits with how the, uh, the Horns Department Store took over Thor's Trading Post, which took over for the, uh, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, I apologize, Wakahana Wawak Trading Post. And, um, you know, even if Listening Post Alpha was just a style choice change by Frost, changing out one location for the other is still thematically similar to the way something takes over something else's identity. And, um, you know, I don't even have to go into things like Bob and Leland for that. Now, another way that this book and Secret History are similar, there are connections to the real world laced with the real world figures. 
So first I'm going to mention how there's a poet, Hugo Boot. It's a fake identity with a fake book from a fake publisher. So there are still like fake elements of Twin Peaks, but then we get people like Lewis and Clark exploring the area, both there and, you know, both there in Secret History and here. And there's there's a quote in the margin from Mark Twain that begins a fun series of nods to famous writers writing about Twin Peaks in their own style found in the Access Guide. You'll see this happen with a number of figures like uh, Oscar Wilde, Sarah Bernhardt, the opera star, Charlie Chaplin, Vladimir Nabokov, and the Guess Who? Um... So, you know, finding details about our world within Twin Peaks isn't necessarily a sign that the show is waking up into our world or anything. You know, it's it's always had some bleed over, you know, even as early as the Kennedys. But the part that really, really interests me about the Access Guide since the uh, the Frost books came out, especially, is the reversals, the blatant reversals of things inside this book. Um Okay, so the town is on opposite ends of the state here and in future media. And um, there's this this strangeness about the football team. Um, the football team has a perfect season here. There's five pages, which is a lot of real estate for any topic in this book. And that's quite the torch for a town to hold, especially when there's no mention of today's team. So thematically, this is another instance of being ruled by the past. And it gives us the uh, the starting lineup of that year's team. You know, 12 specific players with their nicknames anyway. The names include Hank Jennings, the lonesome end. Harry S. Truman, quarterback, best completion record in the, the Tri-County area for two straight seasons. Uh, Thadalonius, Toad Barker, the roving defensive back. Ed Big Ed Hurley, stopped him cold every time or almost every time, and Tommy the Hawk Hill, hero of the undefeated season. On the bottom, we get a list of all names pictured, and the margins have silly anecdotes about Coach Bobo Hobson, and um, there's a breakdown of every game, where when the season ended, it ended in victory when Hawk scores the final points on a ridiculously long fluke play. Uh, Ed Hurley said, the best thing in our lives, and we did it together. This would honestly have just been a silly fluff piece, except for the fact that Secret History of Twin Peaks changed all of this. In Secret History of Twin Peaks, they lose the championship due to Hank possibly throwing the game by purposely missing the catch at the last minute. So a positive moment from Hawk here is replaced in the, in the other book with a negative moment from Hank. And we even see different team names entirely, kind of like listening post-alpha and Ungwin's Field Observatory. Um, the Steeplejacks are in the book here, uh, which are replaced by the Lumberjacks in Secret History of Twin Peaks. And I'll tell you what, Mark Frost is a sports fan. He's not going to forget the team name, nor the fact that his team won a perfect season. You know, the, these are things like, uh, you know, I, I could tell you all about the, the Giants versus Patriots game where the Patriots were going for a perfect season and then they lost in the end. You know, I mean, there, there are things with sports that you're just going to know. 
you know, it's like I didn't even watch Tampa Bay versus Oakland, but I know that was the year before before 2001 season when the Rams lost to the Patriots. You know, it's like things like that you're just going to remember as a sports fan, uh, even even if you swear off the Rams because the uh, the team owner decides to rip it from your own hometown to bring it back to L.A. You know, it's like there, there are things that um, you're going to remember. So I find it interesting that Frost absolutely changed the team name and then the final um, the final moments of the season to just flip polarities on it and give it a negative instead of a positive outcome. As far as what that changes about the town, you know, in in the case here in Access Guide, they're celebrating a perfect victory for 23 years and not letting go of this this good dream that they're all kind of swimming in. But then in Secret History of Twin Peaks, it's holding on to the pain for 23 years and can't get over the loss of something that long. That's like stunted trauma. And, you know, again, I, I could be, you know, just throwing conjecture at the wall. And, you know, making something out of nothing in a way. But, you know, then we get the case of the founding families arriving in town in a reversed order, too. Um, in here, the Packards arrive one year before the Martells, but in Secret History of Twin Peaks, we have the Martells arriving first. You know, is this one of those moments when Packard Money funding this book rewrites the history for the victor and it actually was the Martells the whole time? Or is it a flat inversion due to whatever Mark Frost was doing with modern Twin Peaks material? You know, this... I'd say could have been a mistake if not for the football and if not for the key distinctions of Pete Martell, too. This book here literally reminds us that Pete was given a chessboard and the rest was history. And Mark Frost has said that he referenced this book when writing Secret History of Twin Peaks and referencing it. And going completely against it is an interesting style choice. And, um, you know, in Secret History, he intentionally says that Pete plays checkers, not chess. It's like, come on, it's right here. It's it's not something to get mad at. It's intentional at this point. Like, for I, I'm not going to, you know, conjecture my way into giving, this is exactly what Mark Frost means, but there is something to it. And... Um, it, it just all kind of goes together with the idea that these ideas are reversed, just like reflections on either side of a mirror. And, you know, for, for a silly disposable, quote unquote, kind of book like the Access Guide, as much as I liked it already, I'm really glad it's an unexpectedly major piece of the foundation of my current understanding of Twin Peaks. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't, uh, I can't recommend this book any more than I already have, but there, there's a lot in here to, to parse through if you want to kind of look at the what was then and what is current if, if you want to. Uh, but honestly, there's just a lot of fun in here, and um, I recommend it. Again, like if you're, if you're trying to build your own town or something, it's great for world-building exercises, and um, yeah, it's, it's just a good time. But, yeah, we, we can't go any further with it. So, uh, yeah, we're here at the sign-off.
You have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on our various social media accounts, which uh, we're barely on Facebook, Counter Social, and Tribal. Uh, slightly more active on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod. And if you really want to find me, I'm active on Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky at Blue Rose Task Force and Tumblr at Blue Rose Task Force. Pod. Visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com or our YouTube channel for additional great shows such as Brevity Box and Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles, including my entire Electricity Nexus column, at 25YearsLaterSite.com or TVObsessive.com. If you want me to make another mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com or catch me with it on any of the socials. We'll see you next time as we cover Twin Peaks episode 28, the 29th overall episode of Twin Peaks, and the first half of the original series finale of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. Deepen and expand, deepen the universe the show takes place. The show takes place.